Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that you speak to us through your word. And we pray that now, as we consider these chapters, that your spirit would uh, uh, speak this word to us, and that uh, he would also cause us to respond to you in the way that uh, we need to respond. Uh, Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Tonight we're going to be looking at a sandwich. Now, when I say we're looking at a sandwich tonight in the sermon, you're probably thinking Andrew has finally gone mad. Why is he going to preach on two slices of bread with some filling in the middle? Well, before you jump to that conclusion, let me explain that it's not a sardine sandwich or an egg sandwich or, you know, a tuna sandwich that we're going to be looking at. It's a literary sandwich. And a sandwich is a literary device where an author puts two things there that are very similar or a continuation of the other. And in between them, he puts something else. That's the filling. Right, so you've got two things and something else in the middle, which is a filling. And just like the layers of the sandwich are meant to be eaten together, you don't take out the bread and then you take out the sardines and then you take out the other bread, okay? you, you eat them together. You, in a literary sandwich, you're supposed to think about them together. Read them together to get the whole point. Well, if you look at chapters 24 to 26 of 1 Samuel, you'll see that it is a sandwich. In chapters 24 and chapter 26, we've got two accounts of David doing the right thing, sparing Saul's life. And when we read the accounts in a couple of moments, we will see that they are very, very similar. They're two completely different events, but there's a lot of similarity about them. And then in chapter 25, sandwiched between them, we've got him very, very nearly doing a terrible thing. And we've got to read these things in light of each other, meant to be read together. Before we do that, let me remind you of some background. You may remember from last week that David was running away from Saul. David was God's anointed one, the one God had chosen to be king. But Saul was the present king. And he was very, very jealous of all that David had accomplished and of all the support that David had received. And... He was trying to kill David. David was hiding from him in the wilderness. But he had been betrayed a number of times. And and this last betrayal, Saul had come after him and nearly caught him when the message came that the Philistines were attacking and he had to turn around and go home. And so David escaped and went to the strongholds. That is the place that is hard to access in another deserted area in the wilderness of En Gedi. And that's where we pick up the story this week in chapter 24. I might move this back. So that might decrease the feedback a little bit. I think that's better, isn't it? Yep, worked. Okay. Now, chapter 24. Uh, Saul heard that uh, David was there, and he brought 3,000 men to come and fight him. Uh, David had 600 men. So Saul outnumbered him five to one. And he knew where David was. So he was coming out to get him. What would David do now? Well, Saul and David were, I 
guess playing a bit of a cat and mouse game there. David was hiding and Saul was coming in the desert looking for him and, and it just so happened that Saul received a call not on his hand phone but a call of nature so he went into a cave to do what he needed to do you know you want a bit of privacy when you if you're the king especially you don't want all the soldiers going ooh there's the king you know right no goes quietly into the cave to have his privacy to do his business but the thing is that very cave was the cave where David and his men were hiding so there they are at the back of the cave and there's Saul at the front of the cave doing his thing and, and when they realize what's happening David's men say in verse 4 of chapter 24 it says here is the day of which the Lord said to you Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it seems good to you. Now, God hadn't actually said that. But they were inferring it from the situation. You guys can start laughing. <laughs> okay, I can see these giggles around the place. Right. So, Saul had fallen into a trap that David hadn't even set. This must be a sign that, that David wants to kill him, isn't it? Though, remember, Saul had said something very, very similar about David back in chapter 23, verse 7. Look at chapter 23, verse 7 on the previous page. It says, Saul says, God has given him into my hand, for he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. Now, had God actually done that? No. That's not what God was planning to do then. And so, brothers, we need to be careful not to fool ourselves by trying to read God's mind off our circumstances. Because we can so easily get it wrong. And we can do all the wrong things with all pious words and intent. David's men thought that God had delivered Saul into his hands so they could kill him. But it wasn't the case. And David knew that. And what he did was to creep up silently behind Saul and hold his nose right? and come up behind him, so to speak, and cut off the edge of his robe. That's all he did. Took the edge of the robe, went back to his men. And as he was feeling guilty about, guilty about doing this, his men was going, What are you doing? But David says, No. You see, God had made Saul king through Samuel all those years ago. God had anointed him all those years ago. And yes, God has chosen David to be king after Saul, but it's not up to David to overthrow him by force. Saul was still the anointed one that God appointed him, and only God would remove him when the time was right. David was not going to take things into his own hands. Listen to how he puts it in verse 6. He says, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing as he is the Lord's anointed. It, it is no small thing to lay a hand on God's anointed. Once God had anointed an Israelite king, it would be absolutely reprehensible for anyone to then come and kill them. Not even David should lay a hand on God's anointed. 
And that was the principle that David went by, a principle that served him well when he became king. For the kingship of Israel was a foreshadowing of the kingship of Jesus Christ. And no matter how bad Saul was, he was still in an office that pointed forward to Jesus. And so the principle here underlines even more clearly how evil the people were when they, when they delivered Jesus to be killed. That's why when Peter preaches in Acts, he says to the Jews, he says, Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one, whom you crucify. See, that underlines their guilt. One of the worst things you could say to them. You touched God's anointed. You nailed him to the cross. So Saul finished his business in the cave and he left without an inkling of the danger that he'd been in. And when he got out and he walked a little bit on, David followed him out and called out, My Lord, the King! And when Saul looked around, there was David, bowing before him with his face to the ground, paying homage to him. And David says in verse 9, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your life. Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave, and someone told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you. But my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancient says, out of, wickedness, out of wicked comes wickedness. But my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog, after a flea. May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. David had proved himself loyal. He could have killed Saul but he just cut the edge of his robe and held it up to him to show him the opportunity that he had. He could have taken revenge for all that he'd done. He could have staged a coup and made himself king. He could have solved his problem of being hounded and marginalized and hunted. But he didn't. He let God be the judge. And he trusted God to keep his promise and rescue him from Saul. And Saul was touched when he realized what David had done. He knew he was in the wrong. He knew that David had treated him better than he deserved and he wept. And emotionally he said to David in verse 17 You are more righteous than I for you have repaid me good whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me and that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And then he makes a stunning admission. He says this in verse 20. 
And now behold I know that you shall surely be king and the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me therefore by the Lord that you will not cut off my offspring after me that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. Wow. David swears this for Saul. Saul goes home but David doesn't. David and his men, verse 22, go back up to the strongholds. Back to those hard to reach places in the desert. They don't go back to the city and the palace with Saul. They don't trust Saul not to change his mind. And they were right. Because one chapter later, in chapter 26, we jump ahead to the other, other part of the bread and the sandwich. In chapter 26, Saul was after David again. Remember last week how the Ziphites told Saul where David was and Saul nearly caught him? And remember how David only escaped when, when, when Saul was called back to, to fight the Philistines? Well, time has passed, we don't know how long, but time has passed and the Ziphites contact Saul again and say, look, David's around here. We can tell you where he is. And for Saul, that information was too good to waste. He'd have another chance to do what he couldn't do before. See, the way he thought about David was so negative that, that even the kindness in the cave was pushed out of his mind. And takes his 3,000 men once again and goes hunting for David in the wilderness. Now, David has his own spies. He finds out where Saul is. And by night, he approached Saul's camp. And from his vantage point on a hill above the camp he could look down and see where Saul lay sleeping near Abner the commander of his army and around him his army sleeping Someone uh, we had a visitor from uh, Penang in Smek 1 today who said that he'd just come back from uh, uh, visiting Israel and uh, went to this exact place, oh, I don't know if this is the exact place but apparently it was, was, uh, was a place where they, where they thought this happened uh, anyway so uh, David decided to go down and, and pay Saul a visit. One of his men, called Abishai, volunteered to go down with him and they made their way down through the, through the sleeping men in the camp towards Saul. And there they go. And finally they find There he was, fast asleep, with his spear struck to the ground at his head. Abner and the army sleeping around him. It's amazing that they got so far. And Abishai said to David in chapter 26 verse 8, he said, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now, please, let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear. I will not strike him twice. But once again David spares Saul's life. Verse 9, do not destroy him. For who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? See, once again we see you can't touch the Lord's anointed. And David wouldn't do so. If you go down to verse 11, he says it again. The Lord forbid that I should put my hand against the Lord's anointed. But there's one more thing he adds here that he doesn't say to his men, at least in the cave. And that is a, another sandwich. Right? Sandwiched between these two references to the Lord's anointed in verse 9 and 10 
is what he says in uh, verse 9 and 11 is what he says in verse 10 as the Lord lives the Lord will strike him or his day will come to die or he will go down into the battle and perish see no matter what no matter how many times Saul behaved despicably to David, no matter how many times he pretended to repent and then came to him again and chased him again, no matter what, David would not trust God's anointed one. He will leave it to the one who judges justly. And he would. So David and Abner took the spear from near Saul's head and the jar of water that was beside him and they left. And they found that leaving the camp was just as easy as getting in. For at the end of verse 12 we realize why a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. You see, God had opened the way for David to get in. Abner was right. God had delivered Saul into David's hands in a way that you wouldn't expect. And if you just looked at the circumstances, you again you would think that God wanted David to kill him. And yet David was right not to do so. And once again we are warned. It can be a dangerous thing to read God's will from the circumstances. So David goes back up to the high place. Overlooking where Saul was but safely out of reach. And he calls out to Abner, the commander of David's army. And, and when he answers, David mocks him. In verse 15. Are you not a man? Who is like you in Israel? Why then have you not kept watch over your Lord the King? For one of the people came in to destroy your Lord the King. The thing you have done is not good. As the Lord lives, you deserve to die because you haven't kept watch over your Lord. The Lord's anointed. Now, see where the king's spear is and the jar of water that was at his head. Saul joins in the conversation. Is that your voice, my son David? It is my voice, my Lord the King. Why does the Lord pursue after his servant? What have I done? What evil is on my hand? Now therefore let my Lord the King hear the words of his servant. If it is the Lord who has stirred you up against me, may he accept an offering. But if it is men, may they be cursed before the Lord. For they have driven me out this day, that I should have no share in the heritage of the Lord, saying, Go and serve other gods. Now therefore let not my blood fall to the earth away from the presence of the Lord. For the king of Israel has come out to seek a single flea like one who hunts a partridge in the mountains. And Saul responded, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will no more do you harm, because your life was precious. My life was precious in your eyes this day. Behold, I have acted foolishly and have made a great mistake. David replies, Here is a spear, O king. Let one of your young men come over and take it. So he's not going to go down. He still doesn't trust Saul. The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and for his faithfulness. And for the Lord gave you into my hand today, and I would not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord, and may he deliver me out of all tribulation. And Saul says, Blessed be you, my son David. You will do many things and will succeed in them. That's not quite as good as last time, isn't it? You'll become king and rule and all that. You'll do many things and succeed in them. But, you know, that's a positive thing. 
And David goes on his way. Saul returns to his palace. See, David doesn't go back to the palace. Saul asks him to, say, come back with me. But David doesn't, because he knows Saul's character. See, David spared him, not because he thought that Saul could turn a new leaf, but because it would be wrong to kill him. David acted impeccably in these two incidences. He did what was right. But remember, in a sandwich you're meant to read the whole thing together. So what's the meat? What's the sardines in this sandwich? Well, between these two incidences, there are two things of note. And they're in chapter 25. Firstly, we read in verse 1 of chapter 25 that Samuel died. The great prophet, the one who anointed both Saul and David, was gone. And the question that is raised is this, how will David act now that Samuel is not around? We saw him doing the right thing in chapter 24, but what about when Samuel's gone? Remember, Israel's a nation, in the time of the judges, they used to serve God as long as the judge was alive, and then leave him afterwards. Samuel was the last of the judges. Would David be like that as well? Would he be like Israel of all? Would he go his own way? Or would he continue to do what is right? Now we already know by reading chapter 26 that David does what is right. But before this happens, he nearly goes his own way. He comes this close to becoming another Saul. Let me tell you the story. There was this very, very rich man in Carmel. You may remember Carmel was a place where Saul had set up a monument in his own honor many years before in chapter 15, so it doesn't have good connotations. But this rich man, he, he was so rich that he had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. That's, that's rich, okay? But he had the unfortunate name of Nabal, which means fool. I don't know why his parents called him that. Um, some Chinese parents will call their kids bad names so the evil spirits won't be attracted to them, isn't it? Right? Like Akao means dog. Right? But Jewish parents didn't have that kind of custom. I don't know why they called such a name. Maybe, maybe, maybe it was a nickname. Maybe his friends called him that because they knew him. But anyway, Nabal was a harsh, badly behaved man. Quite typical, apparently, of this particular clan. But his wife, Abigail, was different. She was not only a beautiful woman, but she was also, as we shall see, very wise. Anyway, David heard that Nabal was shearing his sheep and was taking the wool off in Carmel. And he sent ten young men to him with this message. In verse uh, 6, of chapter 25. Peace be to you, and peace be to your house, and peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we did them no harm, and they missed nothing all the time they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my, my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son David. 
See, David and his men had protected Nabal's flock, and now they wanted something in return, food and drinks to join them in the feast. But Nabal's reaction was harsh. Verse 10. Nabal answered David's servants, Who is this David? Who is this son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed from my shearers and, and give it to men who come from I don't know where? And these young men took the message, went back to David, and David was very, very angry. They had been good to Nabal and his people. They had guarded his property for him in the wilderness. And now they were being slapped in the face, even insulted, as if David was just another servant running away from his master. Nabal had returned David evil for good. And David was furious. He gave the order, everyone put you on your swords. Everyone strapped on their swords. 400 men came riding with David. 200 men looked after the stuff. David was ready to attack Nabal with overwhelming force. Meanwhile, back on the ranch, one of Nabal's men told Abigail what had happened. From verse 14. Behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master, and he railed at them. Yet the men were very good to us, and we suffered no harm, and we did not miss anything while we were in the fields as long as we went with them. They were a wall to us both night and day, and all the while we were were with them keeping the sheep. Now therefore know this, and consider what you should do, for harm is determined against our master and against all his house, for he is such a worthless man that no one can speak to him. Abigail knew that her husband's actions could only mean trouble. So she lost no time. She packed a good lunch for David and his men. The menus there in verse 18. 200 loaves, two skins of wine, five sheep already prepared, five sheaves of parched grain, 100 clusters of raisins, 200 cakes of figs. Right? Lots of food. Put it on the donkey. Went out on the road from a house. Went along the road, and sure enough, there comes David with his two, with his uh, four hundred men charging down, coming the other way. And when they met, she fell before him, face to the ground, as David had done with Saul the king. And she made her speech. Verse twenty-four. On me alone, O my Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives, and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand, now then, Let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. And now let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant. 
For the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord. And evil shall not be found in you as long as you live. If men rise up to pursue you and seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living, in the care of the Lord your God. And the lives of your enemies he shall sling out from the, as from the hollow of a sling. And when the Lord has done good to my Lord, according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you, and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause, or for my Lord taking vengeance himself. And when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant. Isn't that clever? She gives the food that David and his men have asked for. She affirms the promises that God has made to David, that he would be king. She asks him to act toward her in such a way that when he does become king, he won't have the grief or pangs of conscience for having shed innocent blood or avenged himself. And she asks him to remember her when God makes him king. And when David hears what Abigail says, he stops and he thinks about what he was going to do. And he realizes he was about to do something very stupid. He realizes that through this woman, God has saved him from committing a terrible sin. And so listen to what he says in verse 32 onwards. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion, and blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt, and from avenging myself with my own hand. For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, lives unless who, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me, truly by morning there had not been left in the bell so much as one male. That's what he intended to do. And he accepted her gifts and let her go. And he turned around and did not do the evil that he had been planning. When Abigail got home, Nabal was holding a lavish feast in his house. He had plenty of food and got quite drunk. So drunk was he that she said nothing to him that night. But the next day she told him what happened. And when she did, he developed what we would probably now call a stroke. He was paradised for ten days, and then he died at the hands of the Lord. When David knew that Nabal was dead, he knew two things. Firstly, that God had judged Nabal for his actions. Treating the anointed one like Nabal did will attract God's judgment. But secondly, David knew that God had stopped him from doing it himself. God had kept him from doing wrong. He had come that close to avenging himself instead of leaving it to God. He had come that close to killing Nabal and all his family and men. But God saved him 
from becoming like Saul. God rescued him from his own sinfulness. And so David thanked God for saving him. Verse 39. Blessed be the Lord who has avenged the insult I received at the hands of Nabal and kept back his servant from wrongdoing. The Lord has returned the evil of Nabal on his own head. The nice ending to the story is that David was so impressed with Abigail that he sent messengers later to propose to her and she accepted and became one of his wives. So, after Samuel died, we were wondering if David would go off the path. He nearly did. But he didn't. By the grace of God. And the next incident in chapter 26 where David once again spares Saul, which we read about earlier, shows us that he's back on the right path there. David, despite his sinfulness, will continue to be a man after God's own heart. God has preserved him from becoming like Saul. Friends, we need to pray that God in his grace would preserve us from sin. David could look back on this incident. In fact, he does. He says, thank you, God, for keeping me from evil. Because sin is, 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 is not a good thing that God is withholding from us. And we've got to just try and see if we can get away with it. Sin's awful. Yes, it's attractive at the time, but in the cold light of day, it is a terrible, terrible thing. David wanted to vent his fury in Nabal, and God saved him from doing it. And he was very grateful for that. Friends, be thankful to God every time he stops you from sinning. Every time he puts something in the road that makes you think a second time before going and doing it. Every time he gives you a way out when there is temptation. And pray every day, don't you? That God will keep you from sin. Deliver you from the evil one. And when someone falls, don't think you're better than they. Just be grateful that God has prevented you from doing so as well. There, but for the grace of God, go I. The particular sin that God saved David from was the sin of revenge. And that's the common thread through all these three stories, isn't it? David paid back evil with good in the case of Saul in the cave. He paid back evil with good in the case of Saul in the camp. And God saved him from paying back evil with more evil in the case of Nabal. Because in all three cases, God is the one who is going to bring about the judgment. God would be the one to avenge. God would repay. David had no need to avenge himself. That was God's job. God punished Nabal in chapter 25 itself. Saul would be dead by the end of this book. And in neither of those situations did David force the issue and have blood on his hands. Furthermore, God had promised David to make him king. We hear that again and again. 
And God would do so in his time. David did not need to do the wrong thing in order to make it happen. He did not need to kill Saul and force the issue. He did not need to become king by force. And so in this passage, David did not take revenge and he did not use violence against the anointed one to claim his kingship. And friends, Jesus Christ, the son of David, the one whom David foreshadowed, was the same. He did not take revenge. And like David, he did not try to become king by force, even when his supporters wanted him to. In John chapter 6 verse 15, when, when, when Jesus realized that people were going to try and make him king by force, he withdrew to the mountains by himself. He would not take things into his own hands. In 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 23, it says, When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. Jesus, the Anointed One. And yet two verses before that, it says to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. So even though David points forward to Christ, not us, this particular example of David is applicable to us because it's part of the way we are to imitate Christ. Are we ever tempted to take things into our own hands? To do the wrong thing because we think it will help God fulfill his promises? Are we tempted to take revenge on our enemies? Or against those who will do us harm? It is mine to avenge, mine to repay, says the Lord. We need to leave room for God's wrath. God will judge justly. It's not that judgment won't come, it will, it's just not our place to judge it. Listen to the words of Paul in Romans 12. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Friends, do not take revenge. Leave it to God. The final point to make here is once again about responding to the Anointed One. Remember, David points forward to Jesus. And most of the time we read about him is not a model for us, though we can see how various people related to him. And when we look about the stories of how the various people related to David, we are reminded about how we relate to Jesus. And many people relate to Jesus the way 
Nabal related to David. Nabal got all kinds of benefits from David and his men, but then he insulted him, shrugged him off. And there are many people who get all kinds of benefits from Jesus Christ without even realizing it. Life, and health, and food, things, family, friends, work. And then when Jesus comes along and makes demands on him, on them, they just insult him, shrug him off. Don't be a fool like Nabal who shrugged off David, God's anointed one, who would not give him what he wanted and nearly suffered his wrath and eventually suffered God's judgment because of his behavior. Yes, David would have been wrong to attack Nabal, though if he was the king, if he was the instrument of God's justice, the tool by which the rule of God was established, God's instrument of retribution, God's instrument of retribution, if he was king, it might have been a different story. Because part of his job would have been to deal with those who would not submit to his rule. Of course he would have to do so justly, not in the way that Saul did. But we see that kind of distinction today, don't we? I mean, if a murderer is killed by a private citizen, that's a second murder. If a murderer is killed by an executioner after he's found guilty and sentenced by court of law, that's not murder, that's execution. David was a private citizen. He would not have the right to, to murder. would not have the right to be the instrument of God's justice here or one day he would be king who would dispense God's justice the same is true of Jesus Jesus did not avenge himself on his enemies however the day would come when he would not because he's changed but because his role would have changed when he comes as judge of all the world. For he will no longer be acting as a private citizen. He will be the tool through which the rule of God is established. He will avenge and he will repay, and rightly so, because he will be the instrument by which God, the righteous judge, to whom vengeance and retribution belong, deals with his enemies. And we will be fools to act like Nabal. Because the day will come when Jesus comes back to judge the world, justly. And there will be no escape from his wrath on that day. God warns that vengeance belongs to him. Let's be sure we're on the right side of him when the day of vengeance comes. And how do we do that? Well, look at Abigail. But she fell before David, we fall before the Lord Jesus and beg him not to treat us according to our folly. Listen again to Abigail's words to David in chapter 25 verse 31. She says, When the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, when God has made you king, then remember your servant. Remember the thief on the cross? 
He said a very similar thing to Jesus, didn't he? Remember me when you come in your kingdom. When God has made you king, remember your servant. See, what he was doing to Jesus is what Abigail was doing to David. Bowing before the rightful king. Calling on him to show mercy. The difference, of course, between Abigail and David and Jesus and us is that David had to be persuaded. That wasn't his intent. She had to persuade David to do the right thing and turn away his wrath. But Jesus needed no such persuasion. Today you will be with me in paradise, he said. And he promises us the same treatment. And the reason is because on that cross, he was dying to turn away God's wrath against our sin. He was doing it to stop that wrath. He bore our sins on the cross so that we can be forgiven. And so that when he comes as judge, he will not need to condemn us. But we still need to come to him like Abigail did. To bow before him. To call to him for mercy. And to offer him what he rightly demands. Our lives. Before it's too late. Let's pray. Thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the encouragements and the warnings that we have here. We thank you, Father, for rescuing David and saving him from sin. We pray, Father, that you would do that for us. That you'll keep on doing that, Lord. That according to your promise, that whenever we are tempted, you provide a way out. Please do that, and please help us to see that, and to take that way of escape. Deliver us, Lord, from the evil one. We thank you, Lord, that vengeance is yours, and yours alone. We acknowledge that you are the righteous judge. We we can't judge righteously when it's not our place. Help us to be able to hand over our grievances to you, intellect in love, to overcome evil with good. And most of all, we pray that you help us to treat the Lord Jesus properly to bow before him in grateful thanks for all the goodness and all the good things that you've given us through him. And to give him the appropriate response of our lives in worship. Help us to cast ourselves on his mercy, knowing that his grace rich in abundance 
knowing that he loves us and died for us and wants to forgive us. Lord, we pray that by your grace not only would we be saved from the consequences of our sin but continue to be saved from the sinful actions that our hearts keep wanting to do. Save us, Lord, and change us, Lord, to be more like your Son, who is our true King. And we ask this in his name. Amen.